Amen. Thank you for that. There aren't too many times when you come to church and get four sermons. Some of you got your money's worth already in this conference. I'm afraid uh, some might be tempted not to come back tomorrow. They're going to think, man, I already got, I got everything I needed. Now, that was tremendous. and I really appreciate that. I made two major decisions tonight. First, I decided that the next time I'm asked to preach, I'm only going to prepare for 10 minutes. <laughs> and the second decision I made is the next time I'm asked to sing, I'm not going to practice at all. Never been asked to sing the first time, though. That's the problem. So, but what a great, what a great start! And uh, I know that God's working in hearts. You can sense that when the Spirit of God's at work, you can sense that Spirit working. And I trust He's working in your heart, and uh, you've allowed Him to. It's a great joy to be here, and it's a great joy to see many who are here every single year and uh, bringing folks with you, uh, men in the church, and. Uh, uh, God can do some great things in these few hours that we're here that we can take back with us and affect our families and affect our churches and affect our communities. And uh, the Lord knows how badly that is needed today. Well, take your Bible tonight. Let's go to John chapter 11, the Gospel of John and chapter number 11. I appreciate Brother Schmidt and all that he does to prepare for this meeting and, and to just the prayer and sacrifice that goes into it. And I hope that you will express your thanks to he and his wife and uh, their commitment to this meeting. I know that God uh, had to start it in his heart uh, with him kicking and screaming against it, but um, I'm thankful that he yielded to what God wanted him to do many years ago. And I'm thankful for Faith Baptist Church as well and Pastor Rogers who always open their doors with such great uh, uh, grace and, and uh, just welcome us in. And I know it's, uh, it's a sacrifice on their part as well just to have us here. And so uh, thank you, men, for your investment in our lives. John chapter 11. I call your attention to verse 35. Jesus wept. This two-word sentence exposes an emotion in God that may surprise us. I don't know what your mental picture is of God. I don't know what you think about when you are praying or when you are singing not sure what might first come to your mind when you think about God. I know for me, when I think about God, I think of his unwavering character. I think of his unchangeableness, his, his faithfulness. I think of his power, his omnipotence. Verses that speak to me about God are verses like, He is the rock. His work is perfect. All His ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity. Just and right is He. When I think about God, I think about Malachi 3. I am the Lord. I 
change not. I think about Jeremiah 32 and verse 17. Ah, Lord God, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power and by thy stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. My dad was a farmer. Born in 1921, grew up in the Depression era. Quit school after eighth grade. Began farming. Just a teenager. My dad was a strong, physical specimen of a man. His ring size was twice the size of mine. His hands could envelope almost any other man. He was a man that worked hard. 4 a.m. milking 50 cows. For three hours, 4 p.m., another three hours milking cows. Field work of a dairy farm, long hours, long days. My dad never took a vacation. My mom and dad went on a honeymoon when they got married and they talked about it for the rest of their life. It's the only trip they ever took. <laughs> they had a lot of cool stories. I thought, let's do it again, you know. No vacations, no days off. Cows don't take days off. My dad was very tolerant of pain. When he was 13 years old, all of his teeth abscessed in his mouth on the same day. His parents took him to the dentist and they pulled all of his teeth out in one day without any painkillers. 13 years old. When my dad was 15, he snuck off one Sunday afternoon to play football with the neighborhood kids. My grandfather had rules about the Lord's Day. You did the chores, you went to church, but it was the Lord's Day. And he didn't want my dad playing football on Sunday, but they always played on Sunday, all the kids in the neighborhood and the area there, and he snuck off and walked about three miles to a little town called Pipersville, and he played football, and during that game, he got tackled, and both of his knees gave way, and all of the ligaments were torn in both of his knees. He had to crawl home. When he got home, my grandfather said, well, be sure your sin will find you out. He never took him to a doctor. By the time my dad was in his 40s, it was bone on bone in his knees. Lived with amazing amounts of pain in his body. He had his knees replaced. During one of those surgeries, he developed some blood clots in his, in his spine. They had to go in and take all of the muscle out of his back in order to get to those blood clots. They said he'd never walk again, but my dad weathered through those therapy sessions until he could walk again. On his deathbed, my dad had tremendous inner problems. He had a twisted colon. He had a number of uh, things like, 
like congestive heart failure in that last week of his life, and the doctor put him on a morphine pump. He never used it. My dad was a faithful man to God. He got saved at the age of nine in a revival meeting. A six-week-long revival meeting. Every night, including Saturday night. And my grandfather took the family every night. Evangelist Dennis Shannon preached the gospel, and my dad got saved. From that point on in his life, he lived for the Lord Jesus Christ, served 46 years as a deacon. He and my mom cleaned the church. They were the custodians, faithful to God. And I think of my dad, that's what I think about. I, I think about how strong he was. I think about how resistant he was to adversity in his life. I, I think about his, his spiritual nature as a child of God. One night when I was in junior high, I came home from school and practice after school, and I'd gotten into a bit of trouble that day at school. My mom had a strong sense of intuition, and she knew as soon as I walked in the door that I was in trouble. My dad was already out in the barn starting the milking, and my mom would always keep my supper warm, and so I could come home from practice late and eat a quick bite and then go out and help my dad with the milking. She put that meal in front of me, but she sensed something wasn't right. And after a brief conversation, she jerked my arm and pulled me out of that chair. I was taller than her. I weighed more than she did. I was playing football. I was a tough kid. But my mom turned me over and started spanking me. I was a teenager. Boy, she wailed on me for everything she had. And it hurt. I wasn't about to let her know that. When she got tired out, she stood me up, and I looked at her, and I said, huh, like, is that the best you got? She said, you go see your dad. Now, dad was in the barn. The barn was 100 yards from the house. I took my good-natured time getting out there. I never could figure this out as a kid. It dawned on me one night as I was telling this story. I was preaching and telling this story, and it dawned on me. I never could figure out as a kid how in the time that I walked that 100 yards from the house to the barn that my dad would find out about my sin. I never could figure it out. One night as I'm telling the story, it dawned on me, that's why we had a phone in the house and in the barn. <laughs> While I'm taking the journey to death row, mom's on the horn telling dad everything. I went to the end of the barn that I knew my dad was not at. He always started at one end of the barn, milked those cows. And I went in the opposite end and quietly opened the door and I saw him. He was, he was way down at the end of the barn in one of the stalls, and he was, he was uh, uh, putting a milker on a cow, and he was assisting her as she was beginning to milk there. And I slowly walked down that center cement piece there with cows on both sides and a gutter, and, and uh, I took my time getting to the other end of the barn. And when I did, my dad has back to me. He was 
hunched down next to that cow. My dad always made sure the cows milked out completely. If they don't get all the milk out, they can get mastitis and and even die from that. And so my dad was very careful to massage the udders and, and get all that milk out. And that's what he was doing with his back to me. And I didn't think he even knew I was there. Pretty soon he finished that cow and he and took those suction cups off of her and placed them onto the milking machine and reached up and took the hoses from the air suction pipe. And he picked up that bucket of milk, probably about 50 pounds, and he turned around and stepped over that gutter. And he set that pail of milk down at my feet. And he looked at me and his lips began to quiver. The tears began to roll from his eyes. He said, John, your sin makes me so sick. You know, as a 13-year-old kid, I wished in that moment that my dad would have reached up to that two-by-four that he kept handy for those ornery cows. And I wished he had beat me with that board because I deserved every bit of it. But my dad never laid a hand on me that night. He never took anything away. He never grounded me. He just stood there and wept. It was those tears that kept me from going to a lot of parties as a teenager. Oh, after those ball games, all my friends would say, hey, John, we got a party. Come on, let's go. Ah, I got to go. I never drank a drop of alcohol in high school. I, ne- I never took any drugs. Well, I went to a public school. I was one of two Christians in my public school. All my friends went to Mad City, Madison, Wisconsin on the weekends to get their drugs and their sex and their alcohol, but <laughs> I never went because of those tears. Jesus This is not a tear in the corner of his eye. This is not just a little moistness around the bottom of his eye. Jesus wept. Why? What prompted this emotion of sadness in the heart of our Lord? I believe as we look at this chapter tonight, we see three convicting causes of this emotion in the heart of our Savior. The first cause that I see here is the enemy of death. Lazarus, a friend of the Lord Jesus Christ, the brother of Mary and Martha, in the opening verses, it informs us that he has become ill. This sickness is obviously somewhat severe. Severe enough that Mary and Martha sent word to Jesus saying, he whom thou lovest is sick. That was the right thing to do. Mary and Martha knew that Jesus had the power to heal their brother. They knew that he had the power to solve the problem. They had seen him do it before. They had heard of miracles that Jesus had done and there was no question in their mind that he could help them. After all, he loved them, as the Bible tells us. But Jesus receives the message. But the Bible says in verse 6, he abodes still in the same place where he was two days. 
he seemingly is unconcerned. He seemingly just passes this off as nothing. And so now by the time we get to verse number 14, Lazarus is dead. God is not the author of death. God is an eternally living God. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, which was, which is, and which is to come, the Almighty. The Lord is the living God. He's the true God. He's an everlasting King, Jeremiah tells us. When Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. When Paul wrote to Timothy about his behavior at church, he said, if I tarry long that thou knowest how thou mightest behave thyself in the house of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. God is not the author of death. Death is Satan's plan. He was a murderer from the beginning. The thief cometh not but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Satan's plan from the very start was to separate man from God. As he tempted Adam and Eve to sin there in that garden of Eden, the Bible says in Romans 5 and verse 12, wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. Death is the enemy of God because it separates the creation from the creator. And that's why in the resurrection chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul reminds us in verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. One day this enemy of death is going to be destroyed once and for all. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. But in verse 5, we read that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And his tears are caused by the sorrow that he feels in this separation from a friend caused by death. And we understand that because we too have lost loved ones. We too have stood at the grave. We too have stood in the funeral parlor. We too have experienced that separation from someone we love. I got to my office yesterday morning. I saw that I'd missed a call. Fortunately, they'd left a voicemail. I went to the call. I tapped the button for the voicemail as I was doing a few other things, but as soon as the voice came on, I, I thought, why would she be calling me? Within the first few words of that dear lady, she informed me that her husband had passed one of my dear friends. And as she 
said a few more words, I could see the tears almost through that phone. So her voice began to quiver and her tears began to flow and she said, could you come and preach at the funeral? Tears were now filling my eyes. We suddenly realized there is separation. This is someone we love. This is someone we've worked with. This is something that we, someone that we've had some relationship with, and all of a sudden it's gone. And here Jesus wept because of the enemy of death. But I see a second cause the evil of disbelief. Now it's important when we come to the Bible that we study it in its context, is it not? It's dangerous as preachers for us to pull just a phrase out of a verse or a verse out of a chapter and give no regard to the context. But even as readers, we must stop sometimes and think about the context. We may be reading simply a chapter, but we must think about, well, what has taken place prior to this? And what is about to take place after this? And when we come to John chapter 11 and this amazing story in the life of our Lord, we must think about some of the things that have preceded it. In John chapter 2, Jesus appears at a wedding in Cana. And he performs there his first miracle as he turns the water into wine. And immediately word begins to spread that this is someone unusual. This is perhaps the Messiah. This is a sign. This is a, a, a signal that perhaps this is the one they've been longing for and waiting for and praying for. Uh, perhaps this is the Messiah as he has done this amazing miracle. John chapter 4, he comes to the woman at the well ministers to a woman that the Jews normally had no dealings with. A woman of ill repute, a woman that was looked down upon, a woman that was shamed by those around her, and yet Jesus brings her hope as he draws her to himself. Later in John chapter 4, he heals the nobleman's son. In John chapter 5, he heals a lame man by the pool of Bethesda, a man who had laid there for 38 years. Yet Jesus, in that miraculous power of God, raises him to his feet. John chapter 6, Jesus preaches to a multitude of people by the Sea of Galilee. And as the afternoon approached, he said to his disciples, uh, uh, before these folks go, give them something to eat, lest they faint in the way. And the disciples said, well, Lord, we don't have any food. If we had 200 days of wages, we couldn't buy appetizers for this crowd. What are you talking about? But there was a lad there with five loaves and two fishes. And Jesus took that little lunch and gave thanks and then began to break the loaves and break the fish. And the disciples took those pieces of bread and fish and distributed it to the people who were seated in companies of 50 until everybody had had their full. And now they gathered up the fragments left over, 12 baskets. One of the most amazing miracles in all of the Bible recorded in all four of the Gospels. Later in chapter 6, Jesus walks on water. 
Jesus calms the elements of the storm. In John chapter 8, he forgives an adulterous woman, one who they thought should be stoned. In John chapter 9, he heals a man that has been blind from his birth. And now we come here. And let's pick it up in verse 7. Jesus abode still in the same place where he was two days in verse 6. Then after that, saith he to his disciples, let us go into Judea again. His disciples saying to him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of, the, of this world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there's no light in him. These things said he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Albeit Jesus spake of his death. But they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest in sleep. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. To the intent ye may believe. Jesus Because of the evil of disbelief. We see it again in Mary and Martha. In verse 17, when Jesus came, he found that he had lain in the grave four days already. Now Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs off. And many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Martha runs out, being perhaps the more impetuous of the two, as Mary remains in the house and waits for Jesus. Martha runs out, and she greets Jesus in the way, and she said, Lord, if you had come when we told you, this wouldn't have happened. Lord, if you, had, if you had just shown up when we said to come, that we wouldn't be in this predicament. Verse 32, then when Mary was come, Martha's gone back home now, and she's at the house, and Mary comes. She comes where Jesus was and saw him, and she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Does that sound familiar? It's the exact same words. What that tells me is that had been the topic of conversation around the dinner table the last four nights. Where was he? I thought he loved us. I thought he cared. I thought he was our friend. Verse 37, some of them, the Jews that had come to comfort said, could not this man, which opened the eyes of the blind, have caused that even this man should not have died? Jesus, therefore, again groaning in himself. Jesus wept. Why? Because of the evil of disbelief. How many times do we catch ourselves saying, well, that'll never happen. That's impossible. 
I'll believe that when I see it. You know, gentlemen, statements like that reveal an evil heart of unbelief. And Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12 says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. Catch that. An evil heart of unbelief. Our lack of faith in an all-powerful God is a sin. And Jesus is weeping here. Not just because of a separation from a friend, though no doubt his heart ached and his heart hurt as he was separated from this good friend Lazarus, but his heart was groaning, his heart was hurting, tears came to his eyes. Why? Because of this evil of disbelief. Jesus had said, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to them that believe. We act as if God died. We act as if God has had a stroke. That somehow he lies in a bed in heaven, incapacitated. Has somehow become handicapped. Disbelief grieves the heart of God. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And if we take the opposite of that, then a disbelief does not please God. If the only way you and I can please God is through faith, then to have no faith is to displease God. But I hear people everywhere I go say, well, I just don't see how it's going to happen. I don't see how we could have revival in this day. I don't see how we're going to support any more missionaries. I don't see how we're going to build that building. I just can't see how I'm going to get victory over any of those sins on the board this afternoon. I just don't see it. You're not supposed to be able to see it. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Gentlemen, we walk by faith, not by sight. And yet so often we reveal in the way that we speak, in the way that we even pray, this evilness of disbelief. Romans 14, 23 says, He that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. People say, you think we'll have revival during the men's conference? I I doubt it. I I, I don't suppose it'll last. I'll never see revival in my lifetime. Don't don't suppose that'll ever happen while I'm alive. He's weeping over the evil of disbelief. But then I see a third cause, the evidence of distrust. Now, we can be honest tonight. We do struggle with believing in the miraculous because we don't work miracles. We don't have that power. We we know that we are limited. We're not infinite. We're not all-powerful. 
Brother, Brother Tim can't manipulate revival during these hours that we're together. We, 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 we can't produce revival. We can't force anybody to get saved or we can't force anybody to walk with God or get right with God. We, we, we understand we're limited. And because of that, oftentimes we can't find ourselves trusting. We believe, but it's hard to trust. Did you know that God doesn't always answer our prayers the way we pray them? If he did, he wouldn't be God. You would. God didn't answer this prayer of Mary and Martha. They sent word to Jesus. They said, he whom thou lovest is sick. Come help us. Come, come, heal our brother. They were asking. By the way, prayer is asking. They asked God to do a miracle. They asked God to heal their brother. They asked God to do something about their problem. God didn't do it. But have you figured out that sometimes God's no to our prayers turns out later to be a greater yes? God said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. I'm going to do something better than heal your brother. I'm going to do something better than just get him off that bed and make him well again. I'm going to raise him from the dead. We say we believe, but often we don't give any evidence of that trust. In those moments of difficulty, in those moments of crisis, in those moments when we sense, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need an answer to this prayer. Lord, I need a miracle in my life. Lord, I need deliverance over this terrible habit. Lord, I, 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 need, I need you. But then are we willing to trust him in the answer he gives? In the four Gospels, Jesus told the church to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Each of the Gospels contains what we call the Great Commission, stated different ways. But in each of the Gospels, that was the Lord's parting command to go, to preach, to baptize, and then to train. Great Commission. But after the resurrection, Jesus told the disciples, not yet. It's almost staggering to me to think that those men who had seen the resurrected Christ, I mean, if I saw somebody come back from the dead, my mother passed away a little over a month ago. If she walked through that door right now, I would call my wife. 
I say, honey, you won't believe this. Mom was in the service tonight. I mean, we buried her a month ago, but she, was, she came in the service. I mean, if you saw somebody come back from death, you, you'd be telling somebody. You'd be writing a book. But Jesus said, no. No, Terry, you here in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. You got to have power. You don't have it yet. You got to have the Holy Spirit of God. And he tells them in Acts chapter 1, as they were gathered there, ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, in Acts chapter 2, boy, did they get some power. I mean, on the day of Pentecost, that power came. And God began to work, and 3,000 people were saved, baptized, added to the church. Amazing. A manifestation of the Holy Spirit power. Acts chapter 4, 5,000 men are converted. I don't know about your church. Typically in our church, when a man gets saved, usually there's a woman and some kids too. 5,000 men were converted. Later in chapter 4, it says multitudes of men and women were converted. This church is seeing the power of God here in Jerusalem. God is manifesting himself in a powerful way. And, but, but he said, you're going to have power to preach, not only in Jerusalem, but in Judea and in Samaria and in the uttermost parts of the earth. And I wonder if they... We're sitting around one night thinking, now, we got the first part. I mean, the church is doing pretty good. We started with 120. We got 3,000 on the day of Pentecost. We got 5,000 on this day. We got multitudes on this day. Some scholars believe there was many 100,000 people in that church. By the time we get to chapter 7. And I don't know if they were sitting around there thinking, now, now how are we going to get into Samaria? And how are we going to take this to to, to Judea. I mean, they didn't have the internet. They didn't have a printing press. They didn't have a radio station. They didn't have TV. They didn't have any of that stuff. Maybe they thought, well, maybe we should have a missions conference. <laughs> maybe we should get some missionaries and send them out. I don't know what they were thinking. But they hadn't accomplished all that God had promised yet. Because he said, you're going to be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. Maybe they thought, Lord, we believe that's possible, but how are you going to do it? Well, in chapter 7, one of the deacons is martyred. Name is Stephen. And when they martyred Stephen, they laid their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul, Saul of Tarsus. In chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul was consenting unto his death. He was the one responsible for Stephen's death. And at that time, verse 1 says, there was great persecution against the church that was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad 
throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Oh, wait a minute, God, I, that, that wasn't in the plan. I mean, we, if you would have given us the internet, we could have done it that way. We weren't counting on deacons getting killed. We, we weren't counting on, on having to leave home because of persecution. We, we, we weren't counting on being homeless. See, we believe, but then when God begins to work, are we willing to trust? Some of you confess a sin this afternoon, but now you got to make it right with your wife. Can you trust God for that? See, that's where many of us start backing away from the belief. God will speak to our heart about something, but when we you know, go to write the check for the tithe, well, I, Lord, I, I, I believe you could bless this. I, I, I believe you would honor this if I obey you, but Lord, I, I got these other bills too. Are we willing to trust? I was preaching two weeks of teen camp up in the mountains in Wyoming, way up in the mountains. The nearest phone was 45 minutes away. It was in a bar. <laughs> there was no reception up there, nothing. And I was to be there two weeks. I didn't schedule anything in between the two weeks. I figured I'll just stay at the camp, do whatever they do. They, there was a local church about an hour away that the camp was, you know, the staff was a member of. I figured we'd go down there for church on Sunday. So I didn't, I didn't plan anything in my schedule for that weekend. We finished the first week and vans began to roll in that Saturday morning to pick up the teens and take them home. And I was standing there saying goodbye to some of the teens and a pastor got out of the van and after he had loaded it up and he was about to pull out and he he walked over to me and he said, Brother Getch, boy, praise the Lord for a good week. Our kids are talking about it. They're talking about decisions they've made. And he said, I just want to thank you for coming. He said, we've never met. He said, you don't know me. I just pastor over here in Wyoming. And he said, uh, we've never met, but he said, thanks for coming and preaching our teens. I said, man, it was a great week. I enjoyed it. Appreciate you bringing your teens. He said, uh, what are you doing this weekend? I said, I'm just staying here. Probably help clean up a little bit here today and I'll go with the camp staff to church tomorrow, I guess, ready for Monday. He said, would you come to my church and preach? And I said, well, where is it? He said, well, it's only about 200 miles away. He said, it's in Lander. I'd never been to Lander before. I said, well, I'd be glad to. Let me, let me check with the camp director. And I checked with the camp director. He said, yeah, it'd be great. That's a great church. Go preach for him. So I had a vehicle, and I, he, he, he drew me a map. Didn't have GPS, we had maps. That's a piece of paper with lines on it, for those of you that are young. <laughs> I said, what time service? He told me, and I, I said, well, I think I'll just, I'll drive down Sunday morning. It's 200 miles, you know, I figure four or five hours. So I did. I got off the mountain Sunday morning, drove to Lander, and we had wonderful Sunday school, morning service, just great time. Good church, wonderful pastor. He was kind, invited me over to his house for lunch after. And 
enjoyed a good lunch. And we were sitting there, and he said, uh, Brother Gedge? He said, what do you want to do this afternoon? I said, whatever. I'm just here. Whatever you need. He said, well, would you like to take a hike? He said, we, we, our lander is in, a, is in a canyon. And he said, this canyon goes for miles. It's some of the most beautiful country anywhere in the world. I said, well, Pastor, I, I didn't bring any, any other clothes but my suit. He said, oh, I got clothes for you. He said, you want to go? I said, sure. Boy, he disappeared into a bedroom, and he comes out. He's got this gear, hiking boots. He gets me all set, and he goes in there, and he comes out in camouflage. He's armed on both sides. I'm like, are we going on a hike or are we going hunting? I mean, what, what in the world? Vietnam veteran, I mean, he was all in. Well, we start hiking that canyon, and I mean, it was beautiful. It was amazing. Very narrow canyon in places, high walls, beautiful uh, color and structure that you could look at, and, and uh, the trail wasn't really marked well. You had to kind of cut through some brush and different things, but we're hiking along this stream, and wildlife's jumping everywhere. I mean, it is absolutely phenomenal. And we, we hiked for about an hour and a half into that thing, following this river, and all of a sudden, I, I'm looking as I'm hiking, and I don't see the river. And I thought, well, that's strange. This canyon is, it doesn't have outlets. And we were hiking right next to it, and we were going the same direction as the water was flowing. What happened to the river? I said, Pastor, Pastor. He's like 15 yards ahead of me. Pastor. He said, yeah. I said, what happened to the river? He said, ah, don't worry about it. We'll see it again. We hiked another mile and a half. And all of a sudden, the river was back. And I said, Pastor, stop. Stop. I have a question. I said, I'm tired, but I'm not hallucinating yet. There was a river. Then there wasn't a river. Now there's a river again. Explain. He said, Brother Gadge, the river was here the whole time. It just runs underground for a mile and a half. You know, for the rest of that hike, that's all I could think about. That's our God. Sometimes you can see him. You can see what he's doing. And it's easy to trust him in those moments. But then he disappears. And you have services and you wonder, is anything happening here? You have seasons of ministry and you think, we're just kind of hitting a brick wall here. Nothing seems to be going on. Where's God? Lord, I have a prayer to get answered. I, I have a miracle I need. We look around our country tonight, we wonder if, if the God in whom we trust is still around. But he's there. You can't always see him. 
Mary and Martha had no idea what Jesus was about to do. They had no clue what this was all about. All they could focus on is what they could see, and what they could see was not good. What they could see brought doubt. It brought fear. It it, it brought apprehension. But God was at work. And I'm going to tell you something, gentlemen. If you've got something to confess to your wife, God's already working in her heart and preparing her for it. You've got some dishonesty to clean up. You've got some things to take care of. When you get home, listen, God's already preparing the way for that. God's putting some soul on your heart to witness to. God's already preparing that soil. He's calling some of you to a mission field tonight. You know what? He's already got it picked out. The people are being prepared. There's much people in this city, God said to Paul. Just, Just get there. Show up. Are we willing to trust him? Jesus wept. I never wanted to see those tears in my dad's eyes again. I never wanted my dad to have to cry over my sin again. It motivated me. But how much more should you and I desire that tears would never fill the eyes of our Savior because of our evilness of disbelief and the evidence of the way that we live that we don't really trust him. Jesus wept. Let's pray together. Father, you've entrusted us today with a lot from your word. Perhaps it seems a little bit overwhelming to some. So Lord, just kind of cut through all of it and and just speak to each of us individually about the area you want us to deal with next. Lord, may may we understand that when, when you look at our lives and you see sin, when you see disobedience, when you see a backslidden condition. It caused you to weep. Lord, may tonight we do something about the tears in Jesus' eyes. May we once again pray for that faith to live even when we can't see. And to couple that faith with our trust so that no matter what we face, 